Well, if you have your copy of God's Word this morning, let me invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Since we began this major section of the Sermon on the Mount back in chapter 5, verse 17, we've been seeing Jesus address issues that no doubt were extremely relevant to his own day. But have you noticed that the things he talks about are perennial issues that are still equally relevant for us today? We've learned about murder and the anger that fuels it. That's still relevant. We've learned about adultery and the lust that gives way to it. Still relevant. We've learned about divorce and lying and retaliation, things that are still relevant in our day. Not only have we seen the relevance of Jesus' teaching, we may have also detected that, as one commentator drew the analogy, Jesus is like a spiritual fitness trainer. He keeps adding weight to the workout. As we have seen, his teaching becomes ever more challenging. In our passage this morning, Jesus throws another weight on the bar, as it were. This time, it's the plate of loving your enemies. Now, it hardly needs mentioning that this message is significant for us. As Christians, it's possible to slip into the comfortable ease of staying close to our friends, loving only those who are like us. But we need to be rattled from that state at times. So perhaps this morning is an opportunity for that to happen through the words of our Lord. So let's get into this teaching again, Matthew 5, 43 through 48. That was a flyover to get our bearings in this text. We see in verse 44 that Jesus states in the form of a command that his people are to love their enemies and to pray for those who persecute them. That command to love one's enemies is what holds this entire passage together. It is contrasted from what's in verse 43, stated in verse 44, shown to relate to God the Father in verse 45, deemed to be extraordinary in verses 46 through 47, and demanded perfection in at verse 48. But the bare command is given to us in verse 44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The need for this instruction from Jesus is clarified by the context in which he gave it. It was not unusual in the Greco-Roman society to hear something like this as an ethic. To friends be kind, against enemies retaliate. Even in the Jewish world at the time, there were similar things said. Amongst the Qumran community, there was a saying, love the sons of light, hate the sons of darkness. And even in the immediate context of Jesus' command to love one's enemies, we see the expression in verse 43, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And of course, the people to whom Jesus was speaking, they knew this saying because he said, you have heard that it was said. In other words, you know about this. You are aware of this teaching. 
Now, Jesus had been doing that kind of thing throughout the sermon that we've looked at thus far. And in each case, we see Jesus addressing a misinterpretation of Old Testament ethics. Well, I think the same is going on here in verses 43 through 48. There was a misinterpretation of the Old Testament command to love your neighbor. Uh, this misinterpretation began with the accurate wording of Leviticus 19.18, which said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. God wanted his people to love their neighbor. Now, the people of Jesus' day, they knew that that's what the Scripture says. But it seems that where they went wrong was in this way. The text says we are to love our neighbor, not our enemy. We are to love just our neighbor. And so they added to the command to love your neighbor the words and hate your enemy. John MacArthur was right when he described this as a perversion by addition. The people of Jesus' day added to the Scripture something that wasn't there. Now let me say, um, perhaps we need to give them a benefit of the doubt for this addition to the command. You know, perhaps all they were doing was taking into consideration the judgment of God in the Old Testament, looking at those passages that say God hates all evildoers, Psalm 5.5. And how God told the Israelites to wipe out man, woman, and child in Canaan, and how King David said he hated his enemies, Psalm 139.21-22. Perhaps they were looking at the imprecatory prayers of the Psalms, imprecatory prayers meaning prayers offered to God asking him to judge the wicked. Perhaps they were looking at those prayers where God was asked to break the teeth of the wicked. Perhaps they were just making a command out of this theology of the Old Testament. Well, One thing is for sure, God did command genocide in the land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua. It does say in Psalm 5 that God hates all evildoers. King David did say that he hated his enemies and prayed that God would break the teeth of the wicked. But what should we make of this? First off, let's deal with the fact that God hates all unsaved evildoers. That seems to be the one that most people get tripped up on. We are raised in a Christian culture with sayings like, God loves the sinner and hates the sin. And in a sense, God does love the sinner. And we're going to see that shortly in our passage. But in another sense, he hates unregenerate sinners in that he has a strong aversion against them. They have violated his holy law and his character. And sinners are on a course to receiving God's eternal displeasure in the flames of hell. And the only way out of that horrifying destiny is to repent and trust in Christ. He alone can transfer our status from damned to saved, from eternal punishment to eternal life. But again, we must say what the Bible says, God hates all evildoers. Furthermore, as it relates to genocide in the Old Testament and these imprecatory prayers in the Psalms, 
As I study these places in the scripture where God's people are seen to be hating their enemies and calling down God's judgment on their enemies, it is because God had told them they were to be as instruments in judgment and or they had received revelation from God that their enemies are doomed to destruction. In the case of the generation that went into the land of Canaan to wipe out everyone in the land, God had already told Joshua that his armies were to go in there and be the instruments of God's judgment against those wicked people. So it would have been an act of total obedience on the part of Joshua if he prayed, God, bring destruction on your enemies. Now, in the case of these imprecatory psalms, we read about David saying that he hates his enemies in Psalm 139, 21 through 22. He says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. As we read this, we need to remember that David is king of Israel. And he is supposed to be God's protector of his people. So when enemies came into Israel to harm the people as king, he was to pray for God's success in breaking the teeth of and bringing swift military judgment against those enemies. King David then was an instrument of God's judgment. He could pray imprecation on God's enemies. Now, there are other examples, of course, but overall it seems to me there was a kind of hatred toward one's enemies that was justified in the Old Testament, and it was the kind that was judicial in nature. It was judicial in that it was God's people being given the responsibility to bring judgment on those doomed to destruction. So with those kind of things in mind, I have to ask the question for myself and for us today, are we supposed to hate our enemies? Are we called to ask God to break the teeth of the wicked? Well, the first thing we have to say is that God has not given us, the church, the responsibility to bring judgment on those doomed to destruction. And neither has he revealed to us those who are going to hell unless we know of someone who has genuinely committed the sin of apostasy. But generally speaking, brothers and sisters, every wicked person that we come in contact with is a prospect for the grace of God. And because they are a prospect for the grace of God from our vantage point, we are to love them and not hate them. We are to give them the gospel and hope for God's mercy for them. Now my hunch is the people in Jesus' day were not concerned about God's mercy for their enemies. They wanted them to be judged. So they added to Leviticus 19.18 the command, hate your enemies. And the historical reason for this is obvious. Their enemies, the Romans, had taken up residence in their land. The Romans at this time had the Jewish people under their jurisdiction. The Jews had to pay them their taxes. They had to submit to their governance. So just like no one likes it when a bully comes in to take over our, our pickup basketball game, the Jews didn't like this foreign domination of Rome. You can see then why they looked at Leviticus 19.18 and added the words, and hate your enemies. They hated their enemies. And so they twisted the scripture 
to accommodate their own sin. And though they did that, we must not. We must come humbly before our Lord this morning and have an attitude of submission. And with that attitude, we must hear again the words of Jesus. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We are obligated to love our enemies. The word love here is the Greek verb agapao, which is the verbal form of the noun we might be familiar with, agape. Agape is a word that drips with the character of God. It is a word that the New Testament authors use to describe the warm regard for and generous actions of God to humans. We will see Jesus give an example of God's love in a broad sense in a moment, but it seems that Jesus is priming the pump here, if you will, for his teaching that God has a loving disposition toward all humans. Yet for now, he just merely states the command, love your enemies. Now, when Jesus says, love your enemies, what he is saying is something countercultural in our day. I mean, we would agree with that, right? It's not a popular message of our day that we are to love others who are not our friends. And even if you find popular expressions in our day of enemy love, it's hardly a popular thing to live that out. Uh, We're expected to thrust a verbal sword in our opponents when they insult us. We're expected to have some kind of witty, hateful response to those who say mean things against us. It's, It's never enough just to absorb that opposition, be quiet, remain silent, or offer a kind response in return. Our culture doesn't champion the love your enemy command of Jesus with respect to our words that we use. And same with our actions. We're not expected to do good to our enemies. And so what Jesus is saying is against the societal grain on our actions as well. Uh, Jesus teaches just flat out countercultural. But one thing is Jesus is not being counter Old Testament. Loving one's enemies is in fact a repetition of ideas from the Hebrew scriptures. We could point out to Proverbs 24, 17, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Or Proverbs 25, 21, which by the way is quoted by Paul in the New Testament. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. But look at what the law for the Israelites from Exodus 23, 4 gave an example of. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. I can imagine a modern day example of this. Maybe you have a neighbor who rolls through your neighborhood at 9 p.m. with his music blaring and he's revving up his glass packs while he zips by your house. Now you were relieved before this because you got your kiddos to sleep just an hour ago, but this guy is threatening that peace. New parents, you know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, you have kiddos, you know what I mean. You feel like you just ran a marathon and crossed the finish line, but here's this guy blowing through your neighborhood, jeopardizing all that work. And then there's one day you see that dog that he loves loose in the neighborhood. 
and thought comes to your mind, ha, I'm not bringing that dog back to him. Serves him right. That's one way to respond. But the ethic of Exodus 23, 4 is you return that dog to your enemy. And by the way, I think the same response is what Jesus calls us to as his disciples. We do good to our enemies. We love them. And one of the ways we love our enemies is by what Jesus says on the back half of verse 44. Pray for those who persecute you. This uh, makes more specific a group of people Jesus has in mind when he uses this word enemy. Jesus is not merely broad brushing our love for all our enemies while he is calling us to love all our enemies. He's specifically calling us to love those who hate us for being Christians. We know this because he speaks of those who persecute us, those who physically oppose us for our faithfulness to share and live his gospel. By the way, I don't think Jesus' mention of those who persecute us places a limitation on those whom we are to love. Uh, What do I mean? I mean that Jesus is not saying, just pray for those who physically uh, persecute you for the gospel. He's not doing that. And you may ask, why would I say that? I would say that because he's already uh, talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, people who oppose us for being Christians. He said in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you and others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Notice here that in addition to being persecuted, Jesus mentions things like being reviled, which is like someone demeaning you, and being spoken all kinds of evil against falsely because of belonging to Christ. Jesus says that the Christian who receives that treatment is blessed. He's blessed. And so here in Matthew 5.54, when Jesus mentions praying for those who persecute you, I don't think he's limiting our call to pray only for those who physically persecute us. We should pray for others who call us names for being Christians. Uh, You bigot. You, You Bible thumper. You wingnut Religious wingnut, you heard that one before? We could come up with other names as well, but anytime anybody shows antagonism toward us as Christians, name-calling or otherwise, we are to pray for them. That's what Jesus taught. One of the reasons we love Jesus is because he didn't just teach this, he lived it. He's not like many in our day leadership positions telling us to do stuff and then changing their minds and living completely different. Jesus is a breath of fresh air. We trust him because he lived this principle to pray for his enemies. And this is seen most clearly as he's expending the last three hours of his dying breath on a cross. Before he was nailed to that cross, though he was handed over by the Jewish authorities as a result of a kangaroo court, wrongly judged as a blasphemer, condemned to death by the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, mocked, spit on, cursed, fixed to the crossbeams, raised up as a public spectacle of shame. And why? For nothing that he did. His pedigree was perfect, innocent of all charges before the court of heaven. 
Yet in those last few moments of his life, he used his dying breath not to curse his enemies, but to pray for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What manner of love is this? This is the love of a man who is God, and whose love is the God-man would restore man to God. During the very act that would bring that redemption to man, our Lord uttered, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus modeled what he calls his redeemed saints to perform. And he was the model for the likes of the martyr Stephen. After reading about his preaching of a stalwart sermon in Acts 7, we may be thinking everybody there is about to get saved. And if salvation were based on the quality of a sermon, they would all be saved. But salvation is by divine sovereign choice. And Stephen was willing to be faithful to sow the seed of the gospel in the lives of his fellow Jews in hopes that God ordained their salvation. Instead of receiving that message, though, they became enraged. And picking up stones, they hurled them at Stephen to kill him. And while stones were hitting his body, instead of hurling curses, he was praying blessings. Lord, do not hold the sin against them. Do not hold the sin against them. You see, brothers and sisters, this is the right response to those who hate us for being Christians. And though right now we aren't experiencing this physical persecution, we are experiencing the insults and the demeaning comments and other forms of disfavor in our culture. And the way we are to respond is... Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is what our Lord demands. And we should know this demand over our lives as Christians is one that is sourced in the very character of God. To love our enemies is to love like God. Notice that Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And here's the result so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You know, sons are like their fathers. To say someone was a son of a certain father meant they were not only related biologically or through adoption to their father, but it was to say that they were like their father. Actions and character. So the point is, to love our earthly enemies is to be like our heavenly Father. Commentator Alfred Plumer wrote, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. God loves his enemies. How so, you may ask? Well, Jesus tells us there in verse 45, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God's favor is over all those created in his image, those who are his children and those who aren't, those who are saved and those who aren't. God's love in this respect is universal and without prejudice. Now, there is a love of God that is particular and exclusive. It is a love that God has only for his people. 
It's the love that Paul spoke about when he said that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The us there is the elect of God, those whom he has chosen for salvation. This is the particular and exclusive love of God. That is not what Jesus is talking about in verse 45. He's speaking about a love that God has regardless of one's spiritual state before him. It's a love that theologians have called common grace. It's common because it describes God's gracious giving of blessings to all people. All people experience this love, conscious of it or not, thankful for it or not, reciprocating of it or not. But the point about this common grace that Jesus describes here, the part that is utterly amazing is not so much that it's for the good and the just. That's amazing, but probably not utterly amazing. What's utterly amazing is that this love from God is directed toward the evil and the unjust. Those people who live their lives as if God is a fairy tale, they are shown love by God. Those people who suppress his truth by their unrighteousness are shown love by God. I mean, think about that. We're talking about people who wake up every day and have no thought for God, no thought to worship him or give thanks to him. Some of them believe that God doesn't even exist. Foolishness, right? Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. Some of them even go so far as to believe that God does exist, but they hate him and blaspheme him and do so with bitterness and curses. God makes the sun come out, even on those people. They can walk outside and get some sun, vitamin D, right on the skin, right? God sends the rain even on those people. In a hot and dry season, here comes the rain for relief. God lets them experience these kinds of things, though they are his enemies. Of course, the primary import of Jesus' use of the sun and the rain, at least to that initial crowd to which he spoke, was that without sun or rain, they couldn't eat. Think about it. In that agrarian society, your livelihood was wrapped up in the success of growing agriculture. If you wanted a wheat harvest, you were dependent on the sun to come out to provide photosynthesis and the rain to fall down to hydrate your crops. If these things didn't happen, what was the outcome? No crop. No crop, no food, no food, no life. So Jesus is essentially saying, God keeps even the evil and the unjust alive. And that's because of his common grace. Now, let's not miss the point. The reason Jesus is doing this is because his disciples need to know their love for their enemies is to be motivated by the Father's love for his enemies. God loves his enemies, and so should we. But one temptation we have and can be guilty of giving into is just loving those who are like us, loving those who are our friends or loving those who are brothers and sisters in Christ and By the way, we should do that. We should love the brethren. Galatians 6.10 says that we should do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. So brotherly love is commanded of us. It's not only commanded, but I would say it's ordinary. 
ordinary. It's expected of us. But what's extraordinary is when we love those who are enemies. I believe this is what Jesus is getting at in verses 46 through 47. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You see, Jesus is saying that if you love your own and you love them only, you're no different than the tax collectors and the Gentiles. And when Jesus spoke about tax collectors and Gentiles here, his original audience would have known what he meant. He was referring to people who were considered outside the covenant. The tax collectors had sold out to the Romans to gather taxes from their own Jewish people. They were extortioners, many of them, and were despised by the faithful Jews as sellouts who were no different than an unbeliever. The Gentile, on the other hand, was simply a synonym for an unbeliever. Uh, The Greek word here is actually not the normal term for Gentile or nation, uh, which is ethnos. But this is the word ethnikos. Sounds very similar, but it's a different word. And the focus of this word is on the morality or belief of a person. That is to say, a person who did not have good morals or was an unbeliever. So taking these two terms together, tax collector and Gentile, we are right to see that Jesus was using them as synonym for unbelievers. And so this, this makes the edge of his words sharp because Jesus is saying this, if you love only your own, you're acting no different than an unbeliever. If you say hi to your friends, you're acting the same as an unbeliever. So just like other things Jesus says, these words are meant to have a sting to them. Nonetheless, our Lord has in his mind the ideal for his disciples when he states the opposite of it in verses 46 through 47. The ideal is that you and I, his disciples, would seek the reward of loving our enemies. Seek the reward of loving our enemies. Again, he says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Notice that, reward. While there's no reward for the one who doesn't love their enemies, the affirmative holds up. Those who love their enemies receive a reward. But when Jesus speaks about a reward here, we need to understand that this is not a tangible reward, like getting a trophy for winning a game or getting an award for being a good employee. Jesus is not speaking with respect to tangible things, but with respect to spiritual things. In other words, Jesus is speaking about experiencing the pleasure of God in our lives that sense within us that God recognizes our actions as pleasing to him. That's the reward he's talking about. Which, by the way, shouldn't that be something with respect to our motives? We should do things because they please God and bring Him glory, not because we covet material prosperity. We do His will because we want to have His pleasure, and to have the pleasure of God is to experience that God whom the author of Hebrews says is a rewarder to those who diligently seek Him. So what does this have to do with what Jesus says in verse 46? Well, precisely this, if you want to be recognized by God, you want to have his pleasure, then not only love those who love you, but love your enemies. 
And when you do that, you'll have the pleasure of God. You'll be like Eric Little, right? God made me to run fast, and when I run, I feel the pleasure of God. We may rephrase that from this verse. God made me to love like him, and when I love my enemies, I feel his pleasure. That's rewarding, brothers and sisters. That is the reward we need to seek. Not only is Jesus challenging us to seek God's pleasure, his reward, he wants us to be extraordinary. Again, he said, and if you greet only your brothers, what more, notice that, what more are you doing than others? This word more is the Greek word uh, parison. It's defined uh, by one of the leading lexicons as pertaining to that which is not ordinarily encountered. By application, Jesus is saying that loving our enemies is extraordinary. And the question he presents to us is that if we only love our friends, are we really doing anything remarkable? Uh, Nothing remarkable about seeing someone we love and saying, hi, friend, or hi, brother, or sister in Christ. But as some examples for us, there is something extraordinary about showing up to the funeral of a friend that your enemy is attending and saying hi to him. Something extraordinary about greeting your enemy when you see him at the store. Something unusual about going to the office and seeing that person who just days before made fun of you for being a Christian and instead of giving him the cold shoulder, you you give him a greeting. That's remarkable. That's extraordinary. And simply put, that's Christian. Is your love like this? Is my love like this? Jesus expects it of it, and his words have a sharp edge to them, and they force us to evaluate our hearts and our lives. Is my love more than the unbeliever? Our Kent Hughes says, the question we must ask is, is there a more in my love? Is there something about my love that cannot be explained in natural terms? Is there something special and unique about my love to others that is not present in the life of the unbeliever? These are important questions because if there is not a more to our love, if we love only those with whom we have something in common and who treat us well, if there's nothing more than that, we are perhaps not Christians at all. But brother or sister, if you can look at your life and see that God has made a change, in your life. He's given you a love for your enemies and you know this because he gave you a new heart and you were converted to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to the scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Amen? You know that you're saved and the evidence of that salvation is fruit in your life among which is the fruit of enemy love And if that's the reality, then you rejoice today in God's good work in your life. All glory goes to him. Amen. But I know that he has not finished the good work that he began in you. In evaluating your life today based on this text, you must excel still more. You must excel at loving your enemies, not because that will get you saved, but because you are already saved. And as a saved person, the standard to which you have been called This is the standard we've been called to. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. 
You must reach out to be perfect in loving your enemies just as your heavenly Father is perfect in this. Again, you shoot for this perfection not to be saved, but because as a saved person, you're striving to reach that perfection by the grace of God that powerfully works within you. Forget what lies behind, like Paul said. Strive forward to what lies ahead. You press on toward perfect maturity. You walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in, and one good work he has prepared for you to walk in is to love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. We do that by the grace of God and be the light of the world, salt of the earth. That'll make us look different. And perhaps God will give us an opportunity to share the gospel with the unbeliever so they might come to know him and be saved. Let's pray.